Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz drummer, composer, and teacher, Allison Miller. She grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and her dad had a professional studio in their house where she grew up. She was listening to pros recording amazing jazz from an early age. And she started out on the drums herself at the age of 10, and she loves them. She cannot live without them, she said. She is currently promoting her 2016 release, Otis Was a Polar Bear, and that will include a swing through Kansas City on June 30, 2016 at the Blue Room on 18 and Vine. Along with the music, she is a teacher at the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music in New York. She learned from the best, from Dr. Michael Carvin, when she arrived in New York in 1996, and she talks about the lessons she got from him and the passion that she occurred, along with many more tales. So get to know Allison and dig this interview, my friends. It's very nice to talk with you. It's an honor to speak with you. And again, it's another wondrous talent from the Royal Potato family. I've talked to many of you, and you all have such a eclectic, wide palette of, of talents. It's beautiful to talk to you guys. So thank oh, you for thanks. taking some time out. I appreciate it. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start off here. And I know that you're, you're very uh, good about putting up your schedule on your website. But in your own words, tell me what's been going on lately. What kind of activity are you involved with? Well, I just finished a month-and-a-half-long tour with my band, Boom Tick Boom. And uh, we were out touring the, the release of my new record, Otis with a Polar Bear. And that was quite ambitious, I have to say, taking six people on the road for a month-and-a-half. <laughs> Uh, but we had a great time. All the shows were great, and the, the music just really started to fly, which is, you know, really my favorite thing is taking the music from a record and, and, and playing it live so it can breathe and change and, and blossom. Um, and then what what am I doing? I've been – actually just got back from a two-week vacation in Italy. So, wow, uh, right on. I have to say – yeah, I have to say that um, I'm feeling pretty relaxed, which is great. <laughs> and – uh Usually, you know, usually in the summertime, I spend a fair amount of my summer working with students, working with kids at, at various jazz camps around the country. And um, I'll be down in Asheville, North Carolina next week with the percussion, Asheville Percussion Festival. And then I'll be in California, uh, Northern California for Jazz Camp West. And then I'll be back out in California again for Stanford Jazz Workshop. Um, so that's kind of my immediate, kind of a few things I've got going on in the next couple of months. Lending your knowledge to children has to also have a level of relaxation. Is that true? It definitely does. And I, you know, I, in some ways, I mean, nothing is like performing live, but in some ways I get more of a thrill out of teaching than anything because I'm interacting with young minds and young minds are where it's at. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, I learn, I learn from them. They learn from me. I learn, I learn how to teach better every, every single time. Yeah. Just the other day I, I did a workshop for two high schools from Seattle. They were, they were visiting and I, I'm one of the faculty members at the new school in Manhattan. And uh, so I went in and gave them a workshop on, on internal time and rhythmic confidence. And um, by the end of that class, I mean, it was really early, too. It was like 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning, which is not early, but for kid, for high school kids, it's pretty early for a Sunday morning. But these kids just totally came alive 
during that hour and a half. And I learned new things about teaching this concept and they seemed to really enjoy it. And I left there feeling energized for the whole, for the whole rest of the day. It was great. That's beautiful. You know, I've, I fortunately have been to Italy several times between Rome and Florence and, and Venice. And I, I can tell you the historical impact of that area the beauty, the way they live their lives, which is vastly different from the Americas. Did you get anything from that trip that's going to be kind of infused into how your music is is going to be shaped? Anything that's very inspirational or, or monumental? Yeah, I, <laughs> um, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm feeling very inspired from Tuscany. Um, and I've, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Italy over the years, uh, but I've never spent time there like I did this vacation, which was basically renting a little villa in Tuscany and uh, really surrounding ourselves with nature. And, you know, we did our, we did some day trips of the, with different little villages we wanted to visit, but really I was just surrounded by nature. So my, my two inspirations that I came away, two main inspirations um, came away from Italy with were for the first being this sculpture garden that we visited this really great artist from America, actually, um, French, French born, but raised in America, this woman, Nikki de Saint-Fall. I'm a huge fan of her work. My whole family is a huge fan of her work, and it's kind of one of the reasons we went. We spent a little day, a day trekking to this garden, and it was so inspirational to see her sculpture garden that I basically went home, we went back to the villa, and the next morning I started writing music based off of her sculptures. So my, I, I have a plan for my next record, and I'm not sure it'll be with Boom Tick Boom or another project, but uh, I know I'm going to write, I'm, I'm planning on writing a suite of music based on her, um, 10 of her sculptures. That's a very direct <laughs> inspiration. Yeah. The other the other inspiration I had was just, you know, running, I'm a big, I'm an avid runner, so running kind of along the hills of Tuscany in the, in the middle of nowhere and just feeling this beauty and feeling the sense of chaos within perfect harmony of nature. You know, like I would look out into a field and I would see, basically just see grass, long grass and flowers and some moths and some butterflies and and other little creatures flying around. But then I thought about that if I had a microscope and could really look inside all that grass, I would see a whole microcosm, a whole world of, a whole nother world of, thousands of species and I just thought wow they're all working together to keep this field alive and it's complete chaos but but perfect harmony so that really affected me and I'm I'm uh, hoping to transfer that to my composition yeah that's symmetry right there for sure yeah that's cool <laughs> for, for sure so let me let me let me depart the the, the calm waters of Italy and we're going to get into the <laughs> early parts of your life here did you were you raised in the Washington D.C. area? I was. I was raised in um, a, what was a small town called Alney, Maryland, about twenty minutes from D.C. Uh, now it's basically just a part of D.C. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, that was where I was raised, and that's where I kind of D.C. is totally where I cut my teeth. It's where I learned how to play. It's where I started gigging. D.C. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love so, D.C. <laughs> so, so what was it about your childhood that gave you this love of not only music, but more specifically something like jazz? Well, I was born into a musical family, and my parents 
are avid music lovers. So, you know, uh, sorry, I'm outside. Oh, it's all good. <laughs> it's hard to be inside today. Um, you know, I my first in influences and inspirations were just here listening to my parents' records, you know, and they listened to a wide variety of music. They listened to classical music, jazz, a lot of singers like Etta Jones and Sarah Vaughan and, you know, all the greats, but... Um, and R&B, and those were my first early influences. And I always knew I wanted to be a drummer. I guess the way I was really introduced to jazz was through my first teacher, Walter Saul, and he was a big band drummer, so he kind of introduced me to that, the big band genre. Um, and I remember the first record he ever gave me was this this um, Buddy Rich record. And I liked it, you know. You know, I dug it. I dug, like, Buddy Rich's drumming, I thought it was mind-blowing, but it didn't totally grab me. And, you know, of course, at the time, I, I probably couldn't have put words to that, but um, then, and I don't even know who gave this record to me, I can't remember, but I got my hands on Miles Smiles, uh, Miles Davis, with, you know, the, the, the quintet with Tony and Wayne and Herbie and Ron, and that record really sealed the deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I heard that record, I thought, wow. I want to do this or I want to be involved in this. I have no idea what they're doing, but it's incredible. And I think I subconsciously understood immediately the the level with which they were communicating with each other on the bandstand. And I wanted to get into that. So I was, I was really drawn to the small group format more than the big band format. Although I do love big band, but the, the small group is what really pulled me in. And then, you know, another huge inspiration was it's kind of a, <laughs> there's so many inspirations, but another huge inspiration was uh, that my dad was an audio engineer on the side, like, you know, as a side gig, and he built a studio in our basement in um, Olney, Maryland, kind of to be fears. It was like the country. On the weekends, it, be- it kind of became known as the jazz studio. So on the weekends, all of the great jazz musicians in D.C. would come and record in our basement. And wow. I was like a 10-year-old kid, tomboy, and I would just sit on the staircase and listen to masters like Keeter Betts, who played with Charlie Bird and, and Charlie Parker as well. And then I would listen to, you know, James King. These are all kind of classic. Steve Novosel, who played with Rasan Roland Kirk, and Etta Jones recorded in my dad's studio. So, you know, even though I had no idea the the company that I was surrounded by, you know, the level of company that I was surrounded by, I that I felt it, and that really kind of pulled me into a life of this music. Absolutely. So yeah. you you get involved with the drums at the age of ten, and you know the way the brain works. I mean, you could have grabbed a guitar, you could have grabbed a horn, so you grabbed drumsticks and you got around. A drum set. Why does that? Why did that instrument make sense to you? Why does it to this day? I can't live without drums. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I was born to be a drummer, and there was never a question in my mind. And I'm being completely honest when I say that. I, from the time my mom said, from the time I could say anything, I was like, drum, drum. <laughs> I was always drawn to the drums and in, in the music, the rhythm, the, basically the low end of a track. You know, I was always drawn to, like, the drums and the bass line. If, it, if I was going to be anything else, I'd be a bass player. And I do play bass as well. But, yeah, drums. Drums are drums thrill me. I mean, I've been playing for 
33 years now, and I'm still thrilled every right. time I play, especially after a little break. I mean, like, you know, I just had these two weeks in Italy, and then I had a Sunday night, I had a concert in D.C., and, you know, I have a two-year-old, so I don't get a chance to practice as much as I would like, but uh, I, so sometimes I just, the bandstand is the only place where I'm hitting the drums, um, but when I got on stage and started playing, I was like, oh, my God, I love the drums. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> I felt completely inspired. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just a no-brainer. I have to play the drums. Yeah. That's beautiful. So you've obviously, the classroom has obviously been the world for you. You play with a lot of people on a lot of stages. But from a formal educational environment at West Virginia University, what did you learn in the classroom? You know, I have to say I learned... I learned in West Virginia, I learned harmony, I learned theory, I learned, I got into classical composers, which was a real um, mind-opening experience, and I learned how to teach there. I learned how to play classical music and how to play mallet percussion, because, you know, by the time I got to, to university, I was already gigging in D.C. I started gigging when I was 14, so, you know, I didn't... I think if I had wanted to go to a, a school just to really study only jazz still, I would have gone somewhere else. I would have gone to a, you know, a school in Manhattan or a conservatory, you know, or Berkeley or something like that. But but West Virginia appealed to me because it had a very great, it had a great percussion department. So I could study, you know, gamelan from, from Indonesia. I could study taiko drumming from Japan. I could study, I studied a lot of drumming from Ghana. Um, Indian, like tabla drumming. Uh, I studied classical. So I, you know, I was able to study all that stuff. And I, I honestly, I had a private drum set teacher in college, but most of my jazz studies were outside of school. So, you know, the entire time I was in school, I would, I would go into Pittsburgh a lot to play in clubs and, um, go check out, you know, Roger Humphreys, who is one of my favorite drummers, who was kind of the original the drummer from, you know, um, Horace Silver, Jody Grind, and all those great Horace Silver records. So, you know, I was I was studying jazz kind of outside of the classroom and then studying the more legit stuff inside the classroom. So l let me ask you this. I've always imagined people like Dr. Lonnie Smith and James Heath and uh, Sonny Rollins, they all remind me of the Jazz Jedi Council. And somebody that would have to be in that group would have to be the great Dr. Michael Carvin. He has to be one of the coolest people on the planet. I've been fortunate enough to interview him. What was it like to go to New York in 96, not only to go into a new environment, a new home, but to be learning from someone that is as cool as him and is, is such a great teacher? <laughs> How long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Just you know, Michael Carvin, each one, teach one, he is he is the master of all masters. Michael changed my life. I don't even really know where to begin, but I would say the first word that comes to mind when I think of studying with Carvin is um, confidence. You know, by the time I got to him, I was, you know, already making a, li making a living, not, you know, scraping by, making a living, playing drums in New York. In fact, most of his students are professional students, professionals already. And, uh, you know, but there was something missing. Like, I, I was missing my confidence. My, I felt like I was searching for my sound instead of just letting my sound be, you know. And um, 
I've, I felt like I wasn't as, as inspired on the instrument as I would, as I had been as a youngster, you know, and I, I, I promised myself my whole life that I would keep my joy around, around music, even though I do it for a living, you know? Um, so I was just feeling this kind of like lull, you know, and I was doing some gig I didn't want to be doing and all this stuff. So, you know, I I was studying with, um, one of his students, one of his disciples, um, Dion Parsons, he's a great drummer. And he basically was like, okay, now you're ready for Carvin. (laughs) And then he sent me to Carvin and I, I can tell you, I mean, Carvin is a dear friend and, and a mentor and, you know, kind of like a second dad to me. Um, but he, I would be scared, scared out of my britches every time I went to see him. <laughs> and, but I would leave and I would, you know, it would be one of these things kind of like when you have to go take, uh, when you have to go take a test and you're like, you know, once you, once you're done, you're, you can, you have summer break or whatever. It would be like that every week that I would see him. I'd be so nervous to go see him. And then I would leave there, leave his lesson, you know, two hours later with so much inspiration and so thrilled, you know. And he basically helped me discover or just not even discover. He helped me let my voice come through on the instrument and really, really, really broke it down to the the, the beauty, you know, embracing the beauty of simplicity and, you know, utilizing dynamics on the drum and um, having passion. Like, it wasn't, a, for Carvin, it wasn't about how much you could play or what your chops were. It was really about what are you saying? You know, like, what yeah. are you saying on this instrument? If you're not saying anything and if you're not emotional and passionate and and have intent, then why are you doing this? And that's yeah. really, 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 he really hammered that into my brain and my spirit. And no, I, I, I really owe it. I owe it all to him. I mean, I owe it all to my all my teachers. You know, you said Dr. Lonnie Smith. You know, I played with him, played with him on and off for years, and he is another one that I didn't formally study from him, but I study from him every time I get on stage. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he, I mean, he's changed my life too. So, uh, but Carvin, yeah, Carvin. Yeah, what a cool cat. I mean, I, yeah. I I remember after talking to him, I came away and I was like, that that is a human being I will never encounter ever again. That is a force of nature that's beautiful. That's all you can say about that guy. Um, yeah, and he's and he's always like that. There's he never that is him. That is a hundred percent him. And if you, yeah. if, if if I would come into a lesson with a, and I wasn't prepared, or or as he would say, my energy was off or my aura was off, the lesson was over. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it was like, and it wasn't like the lesson was over and I I just left. It was like, lesson's over, pay the drum. You know, you, you put your you put your money on the top floor, Tom. <laughs> There's never yeah. a direct exchange of money. And that's it, you know. And and there, he wasn't playing. He was not playing. Yeah. And I needed that. I really needed that at that time. And, and honestly, ever since, ever since I studied with Carvin, my career's had an upswing. Right on. Well, yeah. and sp- speaking of that upswing, you played with Natalie Merchant, Heidi DeFranco, Kenny Barron. You've said Dr. Lonnie Smith. So many of you have been on shows like Late Night with Seth Meyers. What is it like to get on big stages with big individuals? I mean, what what do you learn from all of these kind of veteran players in these big stages? How do you approach it? I approach the, the, the all of these different environments like they're the most important, special 
um, event of my life. <laughs> and I think that's a really important concept for me, you know, to to have as I go onto a stage. And they they are all as important. I'm a, I'm really I'm I'm um I'm a really hard worker and I'm I'm really hard on myself um just as far as wanting to be as professional as possible. And that applies to every gig no matter what. Um and if I find myself not coming on coming onto a, a a stage or a gig with that attitude, then I know it's not the right thing for me, you know. You know, the main thing I keep in mind is in every situation is um, keeping my ears open, having big ears, really listening to the music and what's happening. Um, I try to approach each situation without an ego, like so, so I can really keep my focus on the music. And when I'm working with singers, I really listen to them. I I, uh, I have a really high respect for singer-songwriters, especially singers who are writing their own music and, and singing about real topics. <laughs> I have a high respect for that and I have learned, you know, I started playing with Natalie when I was 23 and uh she really taught me and kind of schooled me on how to play with singers and ever since then um I've worked with a lot of singers and I really really respect singers and uh and I try to really stay out of their way and play the music that the play the drum part appropriate for the song and then if I am going to interact, which, of course, you know, I'm an improvisational drummer, so I, you know, Madonna wouldn't hire me. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm always going to interact in some way, you know. But uh, but I keep it very minimal, and I keep it I, I keep it to spaces in the music that are with, without lyric, you know, so I can really leave space for the lyric. Speaking of bigger stages, this had to be an amazing experience. The U.S. State Department hires you as a jazz ambassador to East Africa, Eurasia, and Southeast Asia. What were those experiences like for you? Each of them were, um, I mean, you know, if anybody went to any any of those parts of the world, you would come home inspired, you know. Um, yeah. Also come home humbled. I came home from all of those places so humbled and so grateful for the life I've, I, that I've had and the life that I hope to continue to have, you know. Um, a lot of people in these in these places, these um countries live off of a dollar two dollars a day at the most and they don't have exposure i mean these things are, i mean it's been a minute since i've done one of these tours but and things are changing of course but you know they don't have a lot of exposure to arts and culture uh i would meet some some musicians in some of these um, countries that were insanely talented but they would never they'll probably never get the exposure they deserve because they don't have the vehicle or the, or the means to do it, you know, to put themselves out there. And um, it just really, really humbled me. And, you know, I also got all these wonderful influences from other types of music because one of the agendas of the Jazz Ambassador Tour would be to interact with professional local musicians in each city. So I think that was probably my favorite part of it, that we would collaborate with um, local musicians for instance, in Vietnam, was it Vietnam? Yeah, in Vietnam, and uh, we played with. We ended up playing a Love Supreme nice. with lo uh, local musicians playing their folkloric instruments, which are not exactly tuned to a Western key, but kind of close enough, you know. And we kind of did that. We did this version of a Love Supreme that was so beautiful and transcendent, 
and it was just so great to interact with the musicians from around the world. Yeah, absolutely. So let me let me ask you this: You set up the Walter Saul Memorial Scholarship Foundation as an ode to your initial teacher. That had to be a really good full circle kind of uh, moment for you. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, Walter was a really, really important person in my life. Um, my first inspiration, you know, the reason I play this music. And, uh, and he, <laughs> you know, he was one of these guys that wasn't exactly... I want to put it this way. He wasn't exactly PC. (laughs) He was was old school, you know. I mean, he, and as the years went on and as, you know, kind of the the public school system tightened down the rules, you know, a little bit, he went from being very accepted at my local high school to come in at any time to work with the big band or, you know, to do anything. It was just kind of like, hey, there's Walt, you know. But near the end of his life, he ended up not, getting kind of banned from going to the high school to help kids. Wow. Because he didn't he didn't um he didn't simmer out his language when he <laughs> when yeah. he came into a band room, you know? I mean he said what he wanted to say when he wanted to say it. And that of course became unacceptable in the high school system in Montgomery County. So, you know, he got banned, which is really, really, really unfortunate because he was like a walking history book of this music, and he was a real like direct connection to a time in a time in this in America where this music was thriving. So that was a time that was a way for these young students to really connect, you know. And um, so kind of part of why I started this memorial for him, the Royal Scholarship Fund for him, was to kind of get him back in the school system a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and also absolutely. To kind of honestly, a little bit of a poke at the school system, like, hey, he wasn't allowed, but here you go. Like, I'm giving yeah. money to the yep. school under his name. Ha ha, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, good for you. Um, Yeah, I mean, the, he was the guy. I mean, like, I grew up, you know, in the suburban area, and even though we were really close to D.C., there wasn't – and then I'm not, like, you know, I'm not – um putting down my, my upbringing or my family, my parents or anything at, the, at all. But there was a certain thing that we could all get when we went to Walter's house that we couldn't get somewhere else. And that was no TV. And we would just sit around and sometimes smoking cigarettes <laughs> um, <laughs> and listen to old jazz records and yeah. talk, you know. And, like, he read the New York Times from front to back every day. So he was very knowledgeable. And he would talk to us about politics and you know, I wasn't getting that at home. We weren't getting that at school. So yep. We were kind of getting this kind of unorthodox education at Walter's house. You know, you can't you can't replace that. Speaking of Walter, great teachers, Dr. Michael Carvin, tell me at the new school, what's your philosophy as a teacher? My philosophy as a teacher, first and foremost, is to get these students to really listen to each other and to play together as a band. Um, the, the, the class that I teach is called Super Trios. And it's basically a piano trio class. And I each semester I work with two trios, so six students. And my my whole agenda and goal is to get them really, really sounding like a band by the end of the semester. And as a real collective band, not like one person is in charge. I want them all writing music. I like them. I get them writing music together. 
I get them really, really voicing their opinions. You know, a lot of times I find, I don't know, if it's something in the food that the youngsters are eating. <laughs> but a lot of times I find that students these days are, they're a little comatose, you know? Like yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not feeling that excitement and that kind of hyperness about their passions, you know? So yep. I try to get them really passionate about it. And even if, you know, sometimes they'll be playing and something will happen, you know, let's say the drummer's, the drummer's rushing and the bass player's frustrated or the bass player doesn't like the way the drummer's playing on, on their solo. And I'll stop the music and I'll say, hey, you know, bass player, yeah. you, are, how are you feeling? Like you, I, I try to get these kids to actually like express their feelings, which is really hard for kids. Yeah. Especially young boys around the age of 20, you know? So yeah. I, I'm like, hey, what are you feeling? Like, did you like, is something bothering you? And I try to get them to really talk to each other about this stuff. And it, it never fails that if I can get them to do that, they end up becoming a tighter unit and they play better together. And um, even if it's tense, you know, they end up playing better together because they're actually expressing themselves. So that's my biggest philosophy, you know, get them away from away from staring at a music, a sheet of music. I rarely use any music. I make them transcribe everything from records and get them to listen and to play as a band. Right on. So growing up, obviously, your dad had a studio. You 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 were immersed in a lot of great music firsthand. You talked about a lot of great albums. You played with a lot of amazing musicians. If you could get into a time machine and go back in time and see a performance, where would you go and who would you want to see? Oh, my God. <laughs> and you can, you can pick a few. We don't have to keep it to one. I would go, I think it's like 1963, I would go back to hear uh, Coltrane, Coltrane's group at uh, Birdland. Right on. That's that's where I would go. That's one of my favorite records. And, uh, you know, I think it's magical when, when a record can really impact the listener because if you think about it, I mean, jazz is a live music, right? Um, so to... to when I listen to that record, I I, ha I get shivers every time, and to think that they're they're that those musicians and that group was that powerful that they could re record play music in a room over you know over 50 years ago and have it be recorded on this um, piece of tape <laughs> yep. and then made into a vinyl now made into a CD and still yep. and then it's going through my stereo and it still gives me shivers. So if I could go back to the actual moment and be in the room with them, I think I might just have a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I mean, it would be incredible. Yeah, it would be. It would be. So I'm going to take that answer a step further here and ask you generically, why do you love jazz? Oh, I love jazz because it's a human music and it's a community music. It's not an industry music. And the second that, it started to become an industry, it really started to go downhill, you know, as far as, not the music doesn't go, hasn't gone downhill, but as far as the music thriving, you know, and um, and the business thriving. It's the kind of music that you want to hear, you want to play without any amplification, ideally, without any amplification in a small room with an audience that you can reach out and touch. It's not meant to be on a big stage, and I, and I, you know, I stand behind that, of course. I 
I play jazz on big stages, but I prefer small clubs. And, you know, that to me is so human and, and real and visceral. And, um, you know, every time I go and do a jazz tour, you know, and it seems like I go to Europe a lot, um, the Europe and the States, every time I do a jazz tour, I come home with, you know, 20 new friends that I've met around around on the tour, you know, and they become real friends because jazz is a real interactive community-based music. You have to interact with the audience. And and if you don't, then you're not really playing jazz. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right on. What's the nicest thing a fan has ever said to you? It's awesome that you asked me this because just, I mean, I, you know, I'm grateful that I've I've had fans say a lot of nice things to me, but just the other day, um, after my concert in D.C. on Sunday, one of the audience members came up to me, and he was he was a man who is definitely, I'd say he's in his 60s, lifelong lover of jazz. You know? So I really respect this man's opinion. He came up to me and he said, I love the way you cut space. And, and he kind of did this action, this like samurai action of cutting space while he said that. And for me... That was one of the best compliments I've ever received because it's true. Like, because he said, music to me is what a musician does with the space. That's how I think of the music. Like, I love space and I love uh, silence in the music. And for him to actually comment on how I'm adding to the space and silence really meant a lot to me. Everybody has a version of who you are, your family, your friends your business associates, those that watch you in the crowd, but who do you think you are? When you wake up in the morning and you face who you are, who do you think you are? <laughs> wow. That's a hard question. Yeah, it's not an easy one. Who do I think I am? You know, I think, I mean, I'm going to get a little, I'm going to get a little deep here. <laughs> Good. That's what I want. Okay. Okay. You know, I think I'm a very uh, positive, good-natured, good person that wants to have personal relationships, and I feel like I have – it's impossible for me to approach any situation, whether it's running around the park, having dinner with a friend, or playing with my daughter, or playing a show. It's It's impossible for me to – to experience any situation without being, without wanting and needing a deeper connection and an emotional connection to that thing. So um, I try to stay really present in my life. Uh, it's really important to me. Um, I have demons and I'm constantly battling. <laughs> uh, I'm just telling you who I think I am, you know. Sure, um, sure. Constantly battling demons. You know, one of the most important things to me is try to is to try to maintain a, a level of curiosity as I go about my day every day. That's kind of who I think I am. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a great answer. I love it. And that that was my final question, so I saved the hardest for last. Um, Allison, thank you for opening up. Thank you for your time. And, of course, thank you for all the great music. Great. Awesome. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Washington, D.C., Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Allison for her passion, her music, and all those stories. 
If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.